Good morning. You are listening to Radio Maria England live from our London studio. And Father Ewan Marley will be continuing with his series, As I Was Saying. He's been taking us through the uh, letter to the Colossians. So I'll, I'll hand back over to you to continue delving into this uh, bit of scripture. Okay, thank you. Well, today the live broadcast is, in fact, the Feast of St. Paul. It's the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. St. Paul has two feasts, as does St. Peter. St. Peter's feast is the Feast of the Sea of Peter, his chair. And they have a feast at the chair, Peter and Paul, which itself is, tells us something about Paul. Paul's a very complex character, not just in his writing, which are, when I talk about them, you'll see are quite complex, but he's as curious mixed city as a Roman citizen, from this town of Tarsus, which he seems proud of, no mean city, he calls it. And yet he somehow embedded himself in what you might call the central power of Judaism, and Jerusalem became someone who was clearly planning to make a career there. And then the conversion left him, well, alienated and away from what he'd planned from Jerusalem. He goes back, and then finally the Acts of Apostles was a moment when he is excluded from the temple, uh, as it puts it, the doors were shut. And that complexity of Paul actually is what passes through his life, because he is both a Roman and a Jew. He is both Hebrew. But also, I think, though many scholars seem to ignore this, someone with a certain amount of classical knowledge. And that's quite important for his mission. He will, of course, end up in Rome, as will Peter. That's why we celebrate their deaths in Rome. And he will pass through the Roman Empire and he'll pass through its various bits. The empire itself was quite varied. Not everybody was a citizen. Some places were directly controlled from Rome. Others were more independent. The main thing was the openness of the Roman Empire. You could trade all over that great space. There's also a very proud empire which felt that it achieved a certain peak. Hundreds of years of civil wars of various kinds of divisions seemed to be resolved by the Imperium, which had an emperor. Emperor is rather misleading because the word means general. It was chosen to not seem like someone who was utterly in charge, who was merely a servant. Unfortunately, because they were in charge, it's taken on that meaning emperor of someone who's absolutely in power. All of which is in the background, but the letter to Colossians is to one of the more obscure towns, a town possibly we might not have known about or not paid much attention to if he hadn't sent the letter. But his ambition in Paul is not to replace the Roman Empire. That's quite important. Equally, he's aware that the church is a, a new thing, a new way of living together in that empire, and inevitably there is tension. There is tension with the Roman powers, and there is tension too with those who do not accept Christ as the Messiah, many of whom we would perhaps call Jews, but that too is misleading since most of the early Christians were Jews and saw themselves as children of Abraham. But the letter to Colossians has a great deal to say about reconciling all of this Jew and Gentile, as you say. Gentile is just from the Latin word, which means people, and 
the word Paul uses often is just the peoples. There are a people, the children of Abraham, who are the covenant with God, and there are other peoples. The peoples is all the other peoples. But Paul also seems to see a certain reconciliation is necessary for all creation, for all reality. And he sees that too happening in Christ, which is the weakness of the Roman idea. The Roman said deified Augustus, the emperor, and that became quite common. But uh, you know, what does a god do? A god is supposed to look after you in physical terms, control the elements and so forth. And the great poetry of Augustus' time, Virgil and Horace, even though they have really extravagant praise for Augustine, Augustus is power. I'd say he can become a god and become one of the gods. They're also aware that, well, reality doesn't work that way and the, the gods aren't particularly good at caring for you because things still happen. And there are earthquakes, there are floods, there are plagues. The one thing they think Augustus ended was war, but even there, they know that they're threatened from outside. So, you know, life's a struggle, never ends. Paul is within that world. So I'll begin with chapter 1, verse 19, I was talking about last week. In him has been pleased to dwell the fullness. And that word fullness will come up again. But then the next verse is rather interesting about how we connect and how Christ connects. In him, that is Christ, verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to him, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things that are on the earth or the things that are in the heavens. In verse 21, and you who were alienated once, and enemies in your mind in evil works, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you as holy and blameless and beyond reproach in his presence. Um, fairly dense. We notice it's saying a great deal more than simply saying it's making peace between people. It's saying it's actually all creation which is being reconciled. And the reconciliation is with a view to the end of time. To present you at the end, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, in his presence. And the Greek word seems to refer back to the Hebrew way of saying presence, which is literally before the face of him. Now, that's rather more ambitious than any Roman thinker, and certainly claiming a great deal more than Augustus or his successors would claim, reconciling all things. Most it can do is organise the world, be fair. That's the way Virgil sees it. The great thing the Romans can do is bring in order, be good at law, be good at making things work in the human way. Paul is expecting more and demanding more from Christ. He's promising more from Christ. He is, however, also not claiming that this will replace government as such. So in other parts of the Pauline writings, we see him giving advice about how to live in this empire. The empire, he does think, is a great deal of injustice despite their claims. The empire, it does have oppression and it does live by violence, or at least the threat of violence. 
But it's not the job of Christ to change the way political institutions are, are organised or run. Though he does think, and I think all Christians would think, that the better we live as individuals and more committed to justice and mercy and compassion we are, the better the system will work, irrespective of how you design the system. People need to choose to live well if the system is going to be a way in which we can live well. It's never just a matter of rearranging the laws or the institutions. We'll go back to verse 20 again. Through him to reconcile all things to himself. Tapanta. Talked about that, yes, last time too, I think. I'd like to look at the word reconcile. It's a very interesting word. It's, if you're looking in the Greek, you'll see that there are various words for reconciliation which seem very similar. Now, the thing about this word is a Greek word which has been formed from smaller words. And reconciliation itself seems to be, if not a new word created by Christians and by Paul, certainly a word that doesn't seem to occur elsewhere. And you'd have to ask why and how would you bring about reconciliation. But to understand reconciliation, you have to understand separation and alienation. That brings us to word which is known in Greek, which is used by them. Uh, that word separation, as I say, is made from two smaller words. Um, that's upper, upper, uh, I find this word. The separation word is itself made from two words, apo from and alos, other, um, otherness. Um, and it means that, you know, in all of our life there's always the other. It's a favourite word of quite modern philosophy, the otherness of things or people. We are separate, we're individuals, and we're also broken up into smaller groups, into families, villages, or towns, countries, perhaps more of vaguely defined areas, like talk about the West, if we're clear what that means. And from otherness is this word meaning um, being separated from the other, apolotrio, the alos bit is what otherness, from otherness. And that's not saying that, that's a word that's in Greek, it's a normal word, it's a word for way in which people come separated, they may become hostile, or may merely be indifferent to each other, but they're, they're from the other. And say so we can need to be broken up into smaller groups, we can't be forced into one big conglomeration. We need to feel that some places are small enough to be our homes, our concerns, our families. We need to say this is what we are concerned with, which matters most. But there's always a great danger that uh, becoming different from other groups leads to hostility. And sometimes hostility creates a very artificial bond between those who see themselves as fighting with each other. Famous description of people coming out into the streets in London, strangers embracing each other in joy and everybody seemingly very happy. 
and this was actually because World War I had just been declared and declared war with Germany. And people thought, now we're united for common cause. Well, I don't know what happened there, of course. The commonality was paid for by the heavy price of blood, of destruction. What seemed like reconciliation, the other becoming one, all these strangers embracing itself, was actually creating a hostility with others. So it's important that Paul's saying, reconcile all things, all peoples. Christ's promise is a more ambitious promise. It's not one that will be fulfilled to the end of time. It can only be fulfilled gradually, because each one of us has to accept the promise into our hearts. We have to acknowledge that we too can be reconciled to each other. But it's anotherness which is not based on hostility. And that's difficult, because hostility to other people is a good way of becoming bonded to our friends. We become very connected when we have hostility. But then that's not what Christ came for. Christ came to take away hostility. One other thing I might say about this is that the reconciliation word occurs in different forums in Paul, and actually the manuscripts um, give us different ways of saying it. Sometimes you have been reconciled, others say he has reconciled you. But reconciliation, interestingly, it sometimes contains the word from as well. Instead of saying to each other, which is what you'd expect, and you do get that, you know, from each other, as a verb is, you've been from each other, you're now made to each other. He says, from to each other. It says that in verse 22. That's interesting. I think he's thinking, you know, the, the fromness, the separation, actually, though it can be bad in itself, it also means that when we come together, it's a better unity than the unity which had always existed where we never really think about the fact that other people are other people. Sometimes the best friendships come from reconciliation, from having been in some way hostile or misunderstood each other, and then we overcome that, and then we can find a, a deeper, better bond which actually is based on the fact that there was that separation, that there was that division. The division teaches us that unity is hard work, but very, very important work. And for Paul, that unity is being created by Christ. And as in so much as we have faith, hope, and charity in Christ. Well, it's time to stop for some music. Yes, this is Firelight by Brother Isaiah. listening to Radio Maria to, as I was saying, with uh, Father Ewan Marley, and have been talking about Colossians and about unity, a unity that's not um, just a unity against a common enemy, but something more profound. So I'll hand back over to you to keep going through this. Okay, well, I really want to try and finish the first chapter this time, but it's, uh, as I say, very dense. Now, one thing to remember, he's writing to the Colossians and Unlike writing to the Corinthians, which was the place he knew best, he's mm -hmm. actually rather enthusiastic about them. He's, it's, he feels that the things are going well. And so the, the Colossians, one of the reasons I think it's quite a dense 
So it's because it's not so much about practicalities as we've got to sort this and don't do that and this is what's going wrong. It gives them the opportunity then to try and deepen the meaning of Christ and to show what's really happening in Christ, what he believes. I say it must have been quite extraordinary for them to hear this, you know, this claim that Christ isn't just reconciling people, he's actually creating out of his cross a reconciliation through the blood of his cross. An extraordinary phrase, and we take it for granted as Christians because we're used to that sort of language, but imagine what a Roman would think, uh, a man who is executed in a, one of our obscure provinces, and executed it with the cooperation of his own people. And this is your way of sort of making the world a better place. How is mm -hmm. that going to work? Of course, Christ is, is God as well as human, and he's risen from the dead. And by rising from the dead, he's changed the meaning of death. So that also is there to reconcile all things to him. Um, you who are separated in the body of the flesh through death, he will, he will present holy, blameless, and free from reproach in his presence. The great, great reconciliation will happen finally at the end of time, but we're working towards that. So he goes on and is more practical. If you remain founded or having your foundation in faith, that's belief, and strong, and not being moved away from the hope of the good news which you have heard, that good news which is heralded or proclaimed in all creation under the air, under the heavens, which I, Paul, have become a servant or a deacon. So he says, this is what you have to remain strong in. This is your foundation. And he says, in all creation under the heavens, rather than just say through the world. Um, often the world to us just means humanity, but Paul means it's reality itself, everything. Um, cosmic Christ. And that's because... The world itself, creation has to be fixed. It's a world where bad things happen, an unstable world. There are wars between people, but there are also earthquakes, and we all have our confidence in science, or easy science, not real science, shaken by the COVID period. We all realise just how vulnerable humanity is, and... Equally, there have been great things done under COVID. We showed we could stand up to it, but it was great loss. Many people have lost their lives during it, and others are still suffering from illness, and some also are still suffering from fear of infection. So that's what Christ will fix, but not now, not during our lives. But we can get better. We can make progress. Meanwhile, it has to be finished. So, verse 24, Now I rejoice in sufferings on behalf of you, and I complete or fill up what is missing from the endurances or sufferings of Christ um, in the flesh, in my flesh, on behalf of his body, which is the church, um, of which I became a servant or a deacon according to now, here the word is sometimes rather economy, according to the way 
that God has given it to me to work out. That's a more way of understanding. It says the economy of God that was given to me, it's God's way of organising things for you to fill, fulfil or fill up the word of God. Um, a lot in that, but it's, it, it worries people that he talks about filling up or completing what's missing from Christ's endurances. I say endurance is rather than suffering, he uses two different words, but the word he uses there is a sort of suffering Christ suffer from those who are opposed to him. But suffering can mean all sorts of things. And the problem would say, well, surely Christ is Redeemer, surely once and for all he saved us, the letter to Hebrews says, that, oh yeah, but, you know, the suffering goes on. And Paul's very aware of this, Paul suffered immensely physically, all the injuries he sustained, the tortures he was subjected to, the imprisonments, the difficulties of travel, the risks he carried travelling, you know, the ship sank under him. He was bitten by the snake, which he just shook off his hand, as if nothing mattered. And Paul himself would have to say, well, if this is happening to me, it can happen to you, but there must be a purpose in the suffering. And I think what he means, and it's what most theologians would say, he's not saying there's something missing from Christ's suffering. He's not saying, well, he did part of it, we do the rest, but rather the suffering is continuing in his Christian followers to a greater or lesser degree. He could say, well, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't have any belief, even if you're quite a bad person, you may quite have a hard life anyway, you should suffer a great deal, which is true. But then that's part of the point. It's that we must endure pains and difficulties, it's better to endure them, endure them feeling this is Christ in me, this is actually working to the greater good. There is a meaning and purpose in this. And that means that what seems like defeat is actually victory. There is a purpose in what we suffer. It's not to say that we can't alleviate our sufferings, it's not to say we can't avoid them when we can. Certainly not to say we should allow other people to suffer without reaching out to them. We're supposed to fight suffering. We're supposed to fight these passions. We're supposed to overcome. Which is what Paul's saying. I rejoice in these sufferings because they're on your behalf. But he also rejoices because they will end. They're not forever. No suffering is, no. No suffering in this world. And even though... Some people come to very painful deaths. Many others come to very peaceful deaths. Don't know, but we can't believe in the meaning of it. And in that sense, it's not the absence or inadequacies of Christ's suffering, but rather what is left of Christ's suffering to happen in this world. And not all suffering is suffering in Christ. Not all suffering is meaningful or seen as meaningful. But some can be seen as a way in which Christ shows the power of God in us. But we should overcome. A good Christian should always be trying to push themselves, always trying to do more, always trying to overcome the limitations that surround them. Which is what Paul does. He does, after all, write letters from jail. It's in jail he doesn't say, well, I might as well just stay here and enjoy the food. Well, it's going to be much in prison. He writes. He reaches out, he doesn't stop, doesn't give up. Endurance for Paul is never being passive. It's actually trying to be more active, 
no matter the price. He is relentless because he says, you know, the sufferings of Christ are not yet complete. There's much to do. But in his flesh, on behalf of his body, in my flesh, he says, that is, in his flesh, being Paul's particular piece of flesh, after all, we, we're all trapped in our own bodies and other people's pain is never quite as bad as our pain, no matter how much empathy we have. In my flesh, on his behalf of his body, which is the church. And here you see this great doctrine that the church itself is like the body of Christ because it's a body which struggles, which has to maintain its life, which grows hungry, tired, weak, feels pain, also feels joy and relief at times where we can sleep and rest and find warmth and comfort in each other's presence. All of that is bodily, all of that is physical. Christ is not absent from that, far from it. The church is his body. And then, quickly before we move some some music, I'll just read chapter 1, verse 26. The mystery which is hidden from the ages and from the races has now been revealed to his holy ones, to whom God wished to make known the riches the richness, I think here, of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ among you, the hope of glory. So, maybe stop here for some more music. Yes, this is Bruckner's Ave Maria, sung by the Cambridge Singers. listening to As I Was Saying with Father Ewan Marley on Radio Maria and we're getting to the end of the first chapter of Colossians so I'll hand back over to you. Okay, oh, just two more verses although if you're listening to this two more verses could still be quite a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> but it continues, whom we proclaim um, teaching every human being or rather, I think here you know, this would be uh, giving knowledge to every human being or, or mind or learning to every human being and teaching every human being in every wisdom so we can present every human being as perfect in Christ. And for this, I am working and struggling according to the power of him which is working in me, in energy or power. I say energy because actually the word here is energia, which is a theological word, God working in us, Christ working in us. But in fact, uh, many, many years later, it became adapted to mean energy. So it's a physical word, word in physics, which has come from indirectly from the New Testament. But in working, it means literally, you know, working inside something. Which we see, of course, in physics, you know, you touch something and it's hot and you don't know why, or it's vibrating and you don't know why there's power in it which is useful for science, but Christ is a more powerful way of being present because he's present to things as they are. He's not heat or vibration or cold. He is the one who makes all things and therefore makes all things be more themselves. I said last week, I think, uh, about two weeks ago, about how the word all is quite common in Colossians. All. 
or every um, every human being, every wisdom. And he says every human being three times in verse 28. Which shows that for him this is a universal message. It's for all humanity. It's not just for the chosen. It's not just for those who are children of the covenant, which is what Judaism stood for, or some forms of Judaism. There were Jews who said, well, the Torah and covenant is special to us, but there is also basic teaching of law, which is for the world. So it's not entirely true that Judaism had no idea of teaching to the world. But Paul goes well beyond that, he says, of crisis for the whole of humanity. There is no human being to be excluded from the faith. There is no one who is to be denied baptism. There is no one who is to be denied a place in the church. And he's absolute about that, completely absolute. Even though quite a few people were bemused by this, you know, the Romans, they just thought he was a bit mad or strange or thought, well, I have nothing against your religion, but why do you think it has to be my religion? To which Paul would have replied, well, because this is religion, this is for everyone. Another word we have is mystery, the mystery which is hidden from the ages, from the generations of the races, has now been revealed to his saints. And there, there is a sort of exclusive idea that says only some people know this, only some people have received this. He's not saying that therefore it's not meant for everybody, of course he's saying the exact opposite. But he's also aware that it is not widely known at this time, and even now, even among people who are Christians and Catholics, there's a great ignorance of the richness of the message of Christ. They don't really understand much, they're often not their fault, they don't get taught well. Well, sometimes it's because they're not willing to take that risk, not willing to perhaps allow themselves to be religious because they think being religious is a kind of weird way of living, not normal. You often hear that from young people, don't want to be a Christian, it's not normal. Um, then again, I think, who wants to be normal? Mystery, hidden from the ages. That too is a question, I mean, has he hidden it in purpose, God? Has he revealed it only now with Christ? Well, not hidden in the sense that there was no idea of good and bad. There's no sense of God in some vague, complicated way in all the religions and all the peoples of the world. Paul, in fact, thinks that we have a natural law. That's what Romans says, there's a law by nature in ourselves that we do know good and evil to some extent, we do right, know right and wrong. But this mystery is a mystery which is revealed as the fullness of what we can be. Not just good and bad, right and wrong, but also redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, meaning in the struggle to overcome evil. The ability not just to endure, but also to overcome and that can only come with Christ. That's therefore hidden because until Christ comes, no one can understand that, not even the Jews, no one can understand the grace and the mystery and the wonder. But it's been revealed to those whom he calls his saints of the holy ones. And it has to be made known. You have to make it known. You have to announce it to all human beings. 
I stumbled over this word teaching because it says two words. One means teaching, the second one, teaching every human being and every wisdom. But when the first word, though, uh, seems to mean placing mind in people. It's what a teacher tries to do. You try to not just teach something, but to put it in your pupils so they can go away and know it for themselves and maybe teach other people. You know, you're placing an idea in someone's head when you teach them a bit of mathematics or mm -hmm. a language or try to get them to see the point of a poem or any poem. You're putting something in, inside them. That connects to with the idea that Christ is filling the world with all it can be. So I'll finish there and let's say move on with Colossians next week, chapter two, I think. Wonderful. Thank you, Father Ewan. You've been listening to As I Was Saying with Father Ewan Marley, OP, here live on Radio Maria. Mm -hmm.